from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. Do you think this ruling is enough to put police departments on notice that they need to be more careful with this kind of restraint? I think it should. I think it should put both courts reviewing these cases on notice that they, they need to be particularly careful with this type of restraint. And, and it should put police officers on notice as well that they, they need to follow the well-known guidance. Now, I think we need to go further. I, I think that it would be great to see an opinion from the Eighth Circuit that addresses some of these issues. Um, I, I think we need more, but I think this is a great first step. I'm Sarah Fenske. Last week, the U.S. Supreme Court gave new life to a lawsuit in a way that no one saw coming, not even the lawyers who'd petitioned the court for help. The lawsuit involved a man who died in St. Louis police custody, and the court's reversal of two lower courts gives new hope to the family members he left behind. And joining us today with the latest is Kevin Carney, Jr. He's an attorney with the Simon Law Firm here in St. Louis. Kevin, welcome. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. So, Kevin, this case was unusual in that the Supreme Court did not ask either side to make arguments before it. How did you find out that they had taken on this case? Yeah, so I found out from a colleague. You, you get an email when, uh, when you figure out that the court's going to take action in the case, and the opinion was right there, and I jumped in and started reading it. So it was, it was great news to receive. So your first inclination that they were going to consider this was this ruling they'd already made. Yes. And that's yes. very unusual in your profession. It, it is. Now, first of all, anytime you ask the Supreme Court to review a case, it's rare for them to accept it. Um, but then on top of it, the way that this opinion was issued was also rare. Um, this was a win for a plaintiff in a civil rights case. And that's rare before the Supreme Court. Uh, but also in the way that the Supreme Court issued the ruling, it was a summary reversal, meaning, as you mentioned earlier, uh, they didn't ask us to come in and make oral arguments. They took a look at the briefs and decided to issue an opinion reversing what the Eighth Circuit did. Yeah, so this is a big deal. And and as you mentioned, this is a civil rights case. I want to just talk a little bit about your client. You represent the family of Nicholas Gilbert. Who was Nicholas? You know, Nick was a 27-year-old young man. Um, he had a loving family. Um, he was, according to his parents, a, a bubbly guy, a happy guy. Uh, he had plans in life. Um, and I can tell you his family misses him dearly. And so he, his family ended up filing this lawsuit against the St. Louis police after his death. What were the main allegations in this suit? So Nicholas was picked up by the police um, on charges of trespassing in a condemned building. And he also had uh, an outstanding uh, traffic ticket, a warrant for a traffic ticket outstanding. So he was taken to the uh, holding cell in St. Louis uh, where he, it was around 2 p.m. he was taken into the holding cell. Around 6 p.m., um, some of the officers said that they saw him uh, potentially with his sweatshirt uh, tied up around one of the bars. Um, and so they said they entered uh, the holding cell, which he was alone in the holding cell. It was about a six, six by six holding cell. Uh, and they proceeded to try to um, restrain him. They were uh, worried with this sweatshirt that he might be trying to kill himself, they, they said? Well, that was that was their story. There's there's contradictory evidence on that. There was another person in an adjoining holding cell who said that actually Nick was screaming, hollering, and um, seemed to be having some kind of a, an emotional issue or a mental health issue, and that they went in to, quote, you know, make him be quiet. Uh, but either way, what unfolded next isn't that, it isn't really in dispute much. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was a total of six officers 
took turns holding Nick down to the ground prone, meaning his face down into the floor uh, while he was already handcuffed and while he was already leg shackled. And that went on for uh, nearly 15 minutes uh, and resulted in his death. And he was crying out during this 15 minutes. He was. I mean, he was he was yelling, it hurts. It hurts. Stop. Um, and uh, unfortunately, they did not. And this went on for 15 minutes. It did. Okay. So the court ended up looking at this because you and your firm filed a lawsuit saying that uh, this this was unconstitutional. Right. We filed a lawsuit that said this is excessive force, that uh, holding someone in a prone position until they can no longer breathe, um, that that's, it's unnecessary, that it's unreasonable to do that. Um, and, and by the way, prone restraint, um, you know, back in 1995, the Department of Justice issued a bulletin to all law enforcement agencies telling them about the dangers of prone restraint. The Department of Justice uh, commissioned some research because they said, hey, we've, we've got a lot of people dying in custody. Why, what is happening here? So they looked into it and they found that a lot of these people who were dying fit the factual pattern of Nicholas Gilbert or even even George Floyd, where they're being held prone on the ground. Um, and what happens is that, that as they're being held down, they start to struggle for air. And the natural reaction to oxygen deficiency uh, is, of course, you're going to try to fight more. You're going to try to fight. And that causes the officers to push down again. And it's just vicious, a vicious cycle that, that they get into. So we filed the lawsuit saying that, you know, this has been known that this is dangerous. They should have handled this in a different way. What they did was excessive force. Um, unfortunately, the district court uh, got rid of the case, granted summary judgment based on qualified immunity. Then uh, we appealed to the Eighth Circuit. And the Eighth Circuit took it a step further and said, um, you know, what happened was not excessive force. It was not unreasonable uh, because he was t continuing to try to get up off the ground. So they said they needed to, to hold him down still, I guess. Uh, and then obviously now the Supreme Court, uh, they, they, they seem to disagree with that. Yeah, the Supreme Court specifically looked at a few things here. They said that it was relevant that he was in handcuffs. And his legs were shackled, and it was relevant that it went on for 15 minutes, you know, that you can maybe use these restraints if someone's resisting. But these were some factors that it, it seems like his resistance could only be limited under those scenarios. How important was that to what they found here? Well, I, I think it's crucial. I mean, the, the, the longstanding guidance to, to law enforcement agencies is that it's okay to have one, someone in a prone position until you get them handcuffed. Mm -hmm. um, but once you get them handcuffed, you turn them, you're supposed to turn them on their side so, so they can breathe. They're in a rescue position at that point. And so I think that was key to the Supreme Court here um, because, number one, he's in a holding cell. If, if they wanted to get the, the sweatshirt away from him, they could have taken the sweatshirt, left the room with it, and shut the door and locked him back in there. Um, number two, then they get him handcuffed. Number three, they have him shackled, his legs shackled together. And then there's multiple officers taking turns holding him down to the ground. So the Supreme Court is saying, hey, look at the circumstances. It, it, it can't be that it's always constitutional, that it's always reasonable to put asphyxiating pressure on somebody uh, just because they're struggling. So the oddity of the Supreme Court's ruling here is that they didn't just say, you can't do this. We're going to find in favor of the family of your client, Nicholas Gilbert. They said, we're going to send this back to the Eighth Circuit Court to look at this again. So this goes right back to the court that found against you. Are you worried you could end up with the same outcome, even though the court is saying you got to look carefully at this particular issue? You know, I think the court will carefully study it. And I, I do think this time that they will find that under these circumstances, 
circumstances that it was excessive force. Uh, but but you're right. The fight is not over, and it will not be over there. Hopefully, the Eighth Circuit um, changes its mind on this issue. Hopefully, it sends it back to the district court here, and hopefully, Nicholas's family gets their day in court. So Justice Alito dissented in this case, and Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch signed on to his dissent. And he said that the court was evading the real issue, and that's whether summary judgment was correct, whether if all the facts were favorable to you, if, if this was allowed, what the these officers did. And Alito said the court should either deny review or, quote, have the case briefed and argued, roll up our sleeves, and decide the real issue. He said basically the court dodged this one. Do you think he had a point there? Uh, you know, I don't. I think that it's an interesting uh, dissent. I, I I'm not sure exactly why. I, I don't think we'll ever know exactly what was going on amongst the justices. That don't that you sort, wish you sort of knew? The, uh, we I, we do. We really do. But um, you know, I, I don't know what he's hinting at. I I know that he wanted to grant the petition, and you know, the Supreme Court has several options. They can issue a summary reversal like they did, or they can actually take the case up, hear oral arguments, study all the facts, and come to a decision. So, I mean, we would have been okay with that too. So, um, it, not a bad dissent to have if you're on our side. Yeah, it is interesting. Now, he did note a few things in this case. Um, he said, this is from Judge Alito's dissent, quote, the officers plainly had a reasonable basis for using some degree of force to restrain Gilbert so that he would not harm himself. And it appears that Gilbert, despite his slight stature, put up a fierce and prolonged resistance. What would you say to that interpretation? Uh, I, I say, of course, they, they could use some force. But this is a case about what's reasonable and what's unreasonable. And that's what distinguishes this case. If they truly th thought that Nicholas needed to be restrained in some way, even though he was already in a holding cell, even though he was already handcuffed, even though he was already uh, on the ground with his leg shackled, then then hold him on his side. Follow the well-known guidance that's out there about how to safely restrain someone. So, um, you know, some force, sure. I, I think police officers have a very difficult job, and I think the lines are hard to see. And I think it would be great if the courts could draw some clearer lines. Uh, I think everybody would approve of that. Something else Justice Alito uh, mentioned, or actually, this sorry, this comes out of the Eighth Circuit um, decision on this. They mentioned that he had meth in his system and that he did have some considerable heart disease. Those are obviously facts that you guys had to consider as, as you're making the argument here. That doesn't change anything for you as far as these restraints. No. I mean, his, his cause of death was asphyxiation. His cause of death was through forcible restraint. It was through not getting enough oxygen into his body. I mean, it's certainly true that, that Nick had a drug problem. It's certainly true that there was some methamphetamine found in his system. Uh, but that doesn't change the result. I mean, if anything, and it's it's been well known for two decades now that people who are possibly under the influence of drugs or alcohol that it's easier to suffocate or asphyxiate those kind of those people. All so, the more reason not to hold them down for 15 minutes. Correct. So with this ruling, as we mentioned, this is a good ruling for you guys in this case. It, it sees new life. The Eighth Circuit is going to have to look at this again. And yet, as Judge Alito points out, it's it's not the final thing in this case. Um, it's still going back. Do you think this ruling is enough to put to police departments on notice that they need to be more careful with this kind of restraint? I think it should. I think it should put both courts reviewing these cases on notice that they, they need to be particularly careful with this type of restraint. And, and it should put police officers on notice as well that they, they need to follow the well-known guidance. Now, I think we need to go further. I, I think that it would be great to see an opinion from the Eighth Circuit that addresses some of these issues. Um, I, I think we need more, but I think this is a great first step. Do you think now that you have this favorable ruling, this is something where the city is going to want to settle and, and you'd be open to that? 
You know, I, I can't negotiate on, on on air, but but here's the the, the thing is, I, I've been shocked that the city has continued to pursue this, very frankly, um, through multiple administrations. Um, you know, the, the city has always expressed their outrage about what happened to George Floyd and, and things like that, but it, it's shocking to the family, at least, and that's, we've talked about it with them a lot, that uh, they don't they're not owning up to what happened in their own backyard. So that's it, a, that's problematic for us. It is interesting. I think we've seen a lot of statements from people, leaders in the city of St. Louis who are upset about what happened to George Floyd. And there's some clear echoes here in this case. Um, does that seem like hypocrisy? It, yes. There's no other way to put it. I mean, everyone agrees. And, and, and it's right. They should express outrage about what happened to George Floyd and other people around the country have had something similar happen. Um, but, but you have to look in the mirror and take a look at what's going on in your own city. You have to take a look at what your own police officers are doing and, and make some changes here. Have a policy in place uh, about uh, prone restraint, about compression asphyxia. And that's not something that we have here. We don't have a... So there's official... no policy on that in, in the city of St. Louis? They do not have a policy. Even today? I, I, you know, it's been several years since I had the chance to to sit down with people from the city and ask them questions. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time we took those depositions, they had no policy in place. There was not one in place at the time. I'm not aware of them putting anything into place. And not only that, there's no official training on the issue, despite this bulletin being issued in 1995. So, And this training was a big part of, of your original lawsuit here, that you were saying all these officers who did this, um, the city was in charge of these people. And as you, you know, you keep using this phrase here about how there had been some clear guidance on this. This was not something that they got training in, not to do this or not to do this for so long? No, we we asked the the city through the discovery process in the case for any documents they had, any training documents, policy documents, anything that had anything to do with these issues of prone restraint or positional asphyxia or compression asphyxia, and nothing. They had nothing. And then we asked them questions. You know, what what is your policy? Where is it? And they don't have a policy. Uh, They did not have official training on it. So that is a big part of the case because, um, you know, it's really hard to blame police officers for for what they do when they aren't getting the kind of training and they don't have the kind of clear-cut policies out there that that will, will tell them what they can and can't do. So we've been talking a lot about policies today, and, and this is important stuff, and these prone restraints, this is important. Um, but beyond this, there's, there's the life of a young man here. Um, how is Nicholas Gilbert's family doing today? Uh, they're okay. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they'll never get over it. They're struggling through it. Um, you know, we, we, we talk frequently about it, and um, it's, it, they miss him dearly. They, they, they really do. And I think... Um, you know, Jody, his mom in particular, would just like everybody to know that, that, that he was a happy young man, that he had plans, that, um, you know, like a lot of people, he struggled with substance abuse, but um, he was loved and uh, they miss him. Well, Kevin Carney, Jr., I'm attorney with the Simon Law Firm, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis.
Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.